Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Ilmari Kaiko, an Associate Professor of War Studies in the Department of Security, Strategy, and Leadership at the Swedish Defense University, Dr. Kaiko's article, The Evolution of Hybrid Warfare, Implications for Strategy and the Military Profession, is featured in Parameter's Autumn 2021 issue. Thank you for joining me today. First thing, I'm very excited to talk to you. We're here to talk about your article, The Evolution of Hybrid Warfare, Implications for Strategy and the Military Profession. In a 2005 article co-authored with James Mattis and in his 2007 analysis, Frank Hoffman envisaged the rise of hybrid wars. According to Hoffman, these wars involve the mixing of different methods and means and combined regular, irregular, and criminal elements with terrorism and new technologies. This variety of means and ways was expected to lead to positive synergy effects for those waging war. How did that play out? So if you think about hybrid war, it became a catchy buzzword in the context of the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Lebanon during the first decade of the 21st century. And what it really did was that it raised the level of threats caused by non-state actors in these wars. But analytically, of course, uh, the problem with hybrid war is that it bridged two already vague and pretty questionable concepts for regular and irregular war. Despite this problem, the breakthrough of hybrid war came in 2014, when Russia occupied and then annexed the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. And after these events, hybrid warfare immediately was linked to a now famous speech delivered by General Mallory Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff of the armed forces of Russia. So some observers interpreted uh, Gerasimov's speech as a Russian doctrine for hybrid war. But we, of course, today know that this interpretation is incorrect. Not only does Gerasimov never employ the, uh, the concept or the term of hybrid war in speech, he also spends most of the, uh, of the speech describing his understanding of how the United States has waged war during the past decades. But what now happened after the Russian aggression against Ukraine and other more covert operations elsewhere, the threat of a revanchist Russia and hybrid war begin to merge. And this raised two problems. The first problem was that some observers seemed to think that everything that Russia or Russians do constituted a part of a well-planned Russian strategy of hybrid war. And this further modeled the conceptual clarity regarding hybrid war, but it also risked leading to hawkish overestimations of the Russian threat and hence to unnecessary escalation. Secondly, it appeared as if only Russia engaged in hybrid war to challenge status quo and to attain its political goals. And the implication was that if only Russia wages hybrid war, then there was little urgency for us to master this kind of war. But this assumption, what it really did was to betray our limited understanding and practice of strategy. So to summarize, the concept of hybrid war was an opportunity for us to think harder about war and warfare. But it really feels like this opportunity was, for the most part, missed. By and large, hybrid war, it still remained a poorly defined neologism that said both too little and too much about contemporary war. More often than not, uh, it felt like the concept of hybrid war, it really hindered our understanding of contemporary war and warfare rather than improved it. What about gray zone conflict? How has hybrid war evolved into gray zone conflict? 
So after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014, I repeatedly prompted my civilian and military students to read writings about hybrid war that then, then became in vogue from the perspective of classic and modern military theory. And in 2016, I published some of my arguments in an article of the Journal of the Royal War Studies Academy in Sweden. And this article was immediately adopted as course reading at, at several courses in the Swedish Defense Unit, University where I, where I work. But during the recent years, I have increasingly felt that the understanding of hybrid war I scrutinized after the Russian invasion of Ukraine is not the same as today. So if one thinks about Frank Hoffman's original understanding of hybrid war, it focused on mixing regular and irregular means and methods on the operational level during war. But what happened after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, many observers began to broaden this definition of hybrid war. So today, hybrid war is typically used to describe not military, but non-military means used under the threshold of war and not during war. So if one thinks about hybrid war from the perspective of strategy, this evolution of hybrid war has really moved the concept from the operational level towards the grand strategic level. So hybrid war is today, it's not really waged during war, but, but rather in the gray zone between war and peace. And even the means have increasingly changed from military means to non-military means. This is, for instance, clear when one thinks about uh, how Gerasimov described contemporary war. So he really emphasized this utility of non-military means. What he essentially did was that he repeated this classic counterinsurgency ratio of war consisting four-fifths of political action, non-military action, and only one-fifth of military action. If one thinks a bit more broadly about this issue, the situation really does resemble the Cold War debates and not least the political warfare that was waged during that time. So political warfare was a concept that was coined by the American diplomat George F. Kennan, who described it as the logical application of, of closest doctrine in times of peace through the employment of all the means at the nation's command, short of war, to achieve its national objectives. So even today, like during the Cold War, great powers, they still seek to avoid uncontrollable escalation of conflict. And it's also good to remember that in many situations, the use of military means is very expensive, but they're also difficult to justify to domestic and international audiences. So all this really has contributed to a situation where many actors today prefer non-military means, or what perhaps could be called non-military warfare. If you return back to Clausewitz, such non-military warfare and political warfare, they appear like oxymorons from the perspective of Clausewitz's theory of war. So first, if you consider Clausewitz's understanding of war as a continuation of politics by other means, all war, of course, is inherently political activity. So from this perspective, the prefix political to warfare really makes little sense. Assume that the Church of Canaan chose this prefix probably in order to de-emphasize violence and to move this kind of narrow military strategy towards broader crime strategy. The second problem, of course, is that if indeed all war is violent in a manner Clausewitz believed, it is unlikely that he would have recognized activities that lack violence as constituting war or warfare. So from his perspective, hybrid war, if there's no violence involved, it's not really war. The political warfare, if there's no violence involved, that's all not war either. So this point has real life implications and it's not mere semantics. So if you think about the military profession especially, we have emphasized managing debt and destruction. That is sort of the core activity that we do in our profession. 
but here the perceived greater utility of non-military means over military ones in contemporary war traces pretty fundamental questions about some of our core assumptions about what the military profession is and what does it do. As a matter of strategy, in your article, you talked about how strategy lies at the core of the military profession because it bridges war and politics. You kind of touched on that a, a moment ago. Can you expand on it a little bit? Yeah, so ever since the times so are closer, which we have tended to understand war as a continuation of politics by other or violent means. The first implication of this, of course, is that the warfare, which consists of organized violence from the closer vision perspective, is a mere means used to achieve political ends. And whereas we tend to describe killing within our societies as murder, murder becomes justified, even necessary and, and heroic during times of war, when it's done in the service of other states and nations. So during war, military violence becomes a means that serves politics to achieve desires. So ultimately, it is politics which legitimize the use of violence during war. But if you think about recent wars, one important lesson from Afghanistan and Iraq and many other places is that mere military means don't guarantee victory any longer, at least when other aims than regime change are sought. And this has been discussed for a long time, but we have not been able to really wage this kind of hybrid war in citation marks that emphasizes non-military means over military ones, or at least attempts to tie together various kinds of means, military and non-military ones, in a more comprehensive whole. So one can, of course, criticize these kinds of political ends, for instance, building centralized states or exporting democracy to countries which have history of neither. But a perhaps more fundamental problem here is still our poor understanding of how we, we can combine various means and ways in order to achieve our political end states. So in other words, we struggle with designing and implementing some strategy in these kinds of wars. We know the war as emphasized by concepts like hybrid war, political warfare and similar concepts. Yet what these concepts also do is that they suggest the increasing predominance of non-military means over military ones in contemporary conflicts. So if one accepts this proposition of the superior utility of non-military means over military ones, it becomes necessary to think hard about the implications to both policy and military profession. And here I hope that my article can serve as a modest step in this process. This was great. Thank you for your time. No, thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.